invite you to turn the Word of God this evening to Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27. As you're turning there, welcome everyone that's gathered this evening as we gather together to pray. I extend a welcome particularly to visitors that are in our midst. I see a number, some have already welcomed. We're glad that you are here and trust the Lord will bless you. You're here, of course, for the, the conference. We're glad you've come a little early and you've gathered with us tonight as we endeavor to seek the Lord's blessing in this church and to include even the events of tomorrow and Friday. Do remember on Saturday we have our ministry to the Hispanic neighborhood. If you're able to join for that, please do so if you can. I know that uh, you may not have signed up for it already, but even latecomers will be welcome. If you can come in and sing with us on Saturday, you'll be very welcome to join in that there are invitations also for the lessons and carol service, so please pick up as many as you are able to distribute, get them out to uh, friends and family, neighbors, those, and just put it in their hand and say you'd love to see them on the 18th of December. And then continue to remember those that mourn, the Anderson family, Panosian family, keep them before the Lord so Exodus 27, we'll give consideration to the Word of God and leave a few thoughts with you. It's been my practice now for some time to hone in on three words that help us just to give consideration to a devotional thought as we come to pray. And so I turn your attention to Exodus 27, verse 20. Uh, it's obviously given, giving various details concerning the tabernacle items of the tabernacle, dimensions, what's to be there, its purpose, and so on. And in verse 20, we read, Thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure, olive, pure oil olive beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. That will be our text for this evening. But let us pray. Let's seek the Lord. Our God, we are before thee tonight. Thankful that we come in the name of our Lord Jesus. Grateful that there is an entrance into thy presence. We come stumbling and stuttering. We know that we are sinners. We know that even though we have participated in thy grace and enjoy the indwelling spirit, that still there is the flesh that we battle with every day. And, O oh God, we would pray for greater deliverance over this body of flesh that we might walk in the Spirit and not fulfill its lusts, that we might know, O God, the endowment of power from on high. We're thankful, Lord, for each one that has gathered for the body of this congregation. We assemble this night to pray, to seek for thy blessing. Lord, this is a busy month for us as a church. We need more than just busyness and things to do. We need the infilling of the Spirit of God. And, O Lord, we would ask that you would come mightily and very powerfully into our hearts as we minister and then through us to the lives that we endeavor to touch. So we pray help us as we look ahead even to the days that remain in this week, tomorrow and Friday and the conference. We're gathered here to pray and Lord, we desperately need your help. We feel it and we long for it and we ask that you will give us what we've just already prayed for, that the wind of God would come bend us, break us, till humbly we confess our need. O oh Lord, come to us. So cleanse our hearts, wash away our sins, 
Renew a right spirit within us and meet with us around thy precious, infallible word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Exodus gives to us, among other things, of course, the fulfillment of what Abraham was told concerning his posterity. What was he told? Well, in Genesis 15, the Lord pointed out to him the fact that his posterity would enter into a time where they would be strangers in a land and that they would suffer. They would suffer bondage. In fact, in Genesis 13 or 15, 13, it says that, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. There's nothing encouraging about that except for the fact God promised that he would deliver his people and bring them into the land of Canaan following it. And so the book of Exodus gives us that account, at least the first part, gives us that deliverance. They're crying out to God. He hears their prayers. He responds in mercy. He delivers them with an outstretched arm, brings them through the Red Sea, makes a covenant with them so they become a a formal nation before God, and then he proceeds to give them his law and then how they should worship him. And in that, of course, there is the pattern of the tabernacle, the various details concerning that, which is where we find ourselves in the latter part of Exodus here tonight. The tabernacle, of course, pointed to Christ in all of its aspects. Almost everything about it was reflecting the centrality of Christ in the gospel. You could not see it or move in it without being pointed to truths concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have it right there in the midst of the wilderness a place that is cut off, indicating that men can, amidst the world, enjoy the presence of God, be the people of God. You would come in and see that altar, the grounds upon which we can approach unto God, a place of sacrifice, a place where animals were killed, as typifying the need for death and substitution, which Christ, of course, did for us. You go on in, you meet the laver, indicating the need for washing, and then you have the tabernacle proper, And the two parts of that, of course, as well. The farther part, the second section, being the most holy place where the high priest could enter in only once a year. And then, of course, that other section that the priest moved about in often where you had the the table of showbread and you had the candlestick and the other items of the furniture that were given and specified by the Lord. Well, we have come to details concerning the, the candle that was to be there. Verse 20, thou shalt command, for those who just came in, Exodus 27, verse 20, thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring the pure oil, olive beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. The words I want you to hinge your thoughts upon here tonight with me are the last three words of the text, to burn always, to burn always. I was thinking about this. It struck me in my own own life, the need for this. While it first and foremost points to Christ, and it tells us something concerning Him as the light of the world burning always, There is to be in all the Lord's people something of this, isn't there? John the Baptist, we are told, was a burning and a shining light. The people of God are told to be 
lights like a city set upon a hill which cannot be hid. We're told we are to be the light of the world. And so there's an aspect of this, while it points to the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be reflected in all the people of God. And I thought of the importance of that, even as a gospel minister, you come to every Lord's Day, or even occasions like tonight, the prayer meeting, and you get very much focused upon the need to stand and communicate before the people the Lord's Word and to hopefully be an instrument of use for God. But it doesn't say to burn on occasion, but to burn always. And beloved, that is to be true of us all, to burn always. How are we to burn always? Because by our need of the, the oil, of course, which speaks of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's, we'll consider that in just a moment, but you have this clearly intimated through Scripture that... Every time you have someone anointed with oil, there is this indication of power, power to serve. Sometimes it's explicitly stated that the, the Lord came upon them. And so they're anointed with oil, the Lord comes upon them. This is clearly pointing to the ministry of the Holy Spirit for service, specifically for service. Of course, you have the Holy Spirit if you're a child of God. If you have not the Spirit, you're not of His. You don't know God. You ask the question of yourself, do I have the Holy Spirit? Do I have the Holy Spirit? If you can't answer confidently, I have the Holy Spirit, why? Every child of God has the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, there is a measure of enjoyment of the Holy Spirit. Between, let's say, two points, you have the unconverted that don't have the Spirit of God at all. And you have Christ who is filled with the Spirit without measure. Tozer spoke of us being leaky as sinners filled with the Spirit. We're leaky. The Spirit kind of is always kind of departing from. We grieve Him. And so He leaves us. So we, we, don't, we aren't like Christ in that we have a constant fullness, without limit, measure of the Spirit in our experience. But between that, there's, there's, that's, that's a spectrum there. And every child of God of any maturity knows that you're constantly in some experience between those two points. You're not like you were before you were converted, praise God. But you're not like the Lord Jesus Christ either. And at times you feel prompted and encouraged and empowered more than others. And without that, it's difficult to burn always. Without the ministry of the Spirit and His empowerment of our lives, it is hard to burn always. So, Let's consider then this under a few headings. First of all, the contributors. The contributors. We're told, Thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure oil, olive beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. It doesn't burn supernaturally. Now, there was a pillar of cloud and fire that dwelt in the midst of the children of Israel, and at night it gave off light. And it led them through the wilderness. And even at times, if they moved through the wilderness at night, it shone, it gave off its life, it gave what was necessary to know the way. So there's, there's such a thing as God providing a supernatural light. But this is not a supernatural light. It's not supernatural in the sense that it just burns on indefinitely without the contribution of men. So we're told that the children of Israel are to contribute here. They are to do something. 
God ordains then that at times the light that is to be before men or in the world, that light has some human aspect to it. It's saying that there's a, there, there's a, there's a vital part in which if we are to enjoy what the Lord would have for us, then we are to recognize our duty in it as well. He ordains it. He ordains it. So, like I've said to you, we, we experience a greater or lesser matter of our enjoyment of the Spirit in our lives. And it's a reality for us to realize that I may not be even where I once was in my life right now. So you look back on your life and you ask yourself, have I experienced times in which I have burned more brightly, more fervently, more consistently, consistently than today? You remember times when you've sat in a pew or been broken in your home and you have wept and melted and longed for more of God? And then you look where you are right now and you ask, why am I where I am now? I know I'm not where I once was. I know. I, I remember vividly the passion, the desire, the sense of willingness to sacrifice that that nothing was too hard that God would ask of me. There was zeal that filled me so that anything I could do for him, I would do. And I would do it joyfully. And you wake up in the morning anticipating meeting with God, reading his words, seeking his face, pouring out your heart for souls, weeping over them. You would go through your day and every single challenge that you would face, you would, you would be throwing up prayer, Lord, help me here. The phone would ring, and you, before you would answer it, you would be depending on God. Give me words. I don't know who's on the other end of this phone, what they need. Please, oh God, give me wisdom. But then you ask, is that where I am now? Is that where I am? Because I was burning then. Well, what's, what's going on now? The light that was to be given off by this candlestick is a depiction of the life of the church. I'm not going to turn there now, but in Revelation 1, you, you have the candlesticks, which are the, the seven churches. And so the church is giving off her light. She is in this world amidst its darkness. I mean, you, you think of that, you, you go into that inner part of the the tabernacle proper, as often it's called, you go in there and complete darkness, complete darkness. And the only thing giving off light was this. It was the only way the priests could see what they were doing. We then are to reflect this very thing amidst a dark world. Light. But it depends on everyone. This is the thing. It's, it's not... It's not the, so, okay, it's not supernatural. It's also not the priests. the priests. The priests are not told to do all of this themselves. Go and get the, the olives and crush them and all the rest of it. And you keep the lamp burning. 
The whole congregation is called to this. In other words, the will of God reflected in the world involves everyone. The church doesn't get to call in experts, call them pastors, missionaries, whatever you want to call them, give them a salary, pay them and say, you do the job of shining the light and doing everything that's necessary. Now the priests have their place and they have huge responsibilities here. But in this, note it, note it. This is everyone. Everyone is to be involved. The whole congregation of Israel, those that are contributing is everyone. They all are to bring. So at some point, the priest has to get up and issue, you know, preaching a sermon. <laughs> bring in the olive oil. Get it in. And the people had to obey. What if they didn't obey? The light goes out. There's no light. Sometimes that's true in the church. There's negligence. You see, it, it can't depend on one person, can't depend on a handful of people. It is, it is to be everyone to be involved here. Just go for a moment to Daniel 2. Just was encouraged by this recently. In Daniel chapter 2. And you remember Nebuchadnezzar, he's had his dream and he's, he gets very upset because he can't get the answers that he wants. And we'll skip down to verse 16 when Daniel gets involved. Daniel 2, 16, Daniel went in, desired of the king that he would give him time, and that he would show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house, made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Why, why did he share it? Why did he share the burden? Why did he let them know? Why not, why not deal with it yourself, Daniel? You know. You go and seek God, God will give it to you. But he, he pulls them in. That they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret. Well, how do you desire mercies of the God of heaven? How do you do that? What's he saying? Brothers, would you pray? Would you pray? Would you get alone with God? Would you gather with me here for prayer? We need the mercy of the Lord. And so they do so. And we're told in verse 19, the secret was revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. But it wasn't just him. You don't just give credit to Daniel. Everyone's involved here. I mean, all through Scripture, you just have this joining of hands. So the contributors. If the lamp is going to burn always, it takes everyone. Secondly, the characteristics. What are the two characteristics needed for the Holy Spirit in His ministry through us? Let me suggest two things here. Purity and brokenness. It's pure oil, isn't it? It's pure oil. It has to be pure. The Holy Spirit Himself is pure he is the Holy Spirit. But he works in conjunction and through the vessels that are also pure. Timothy is counseled by Paul in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. 
purity. Who are those that see God? The pure in heart. I know you can read the Beatitudes and you can ascribe the place of believers. They have this because of Christ. I get it. How can we be pure in heart? Because of Christ. How can our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Because of Christ. But, but there has to be something more to it than that. It's not just imputed. It has to be then reflected. It has to be. The righteousness of Christ cannot be imputed without demanding that it's also reflected. And so we're to be pure in heart. So let me ask, is there impurity in your life? Impurity. You can't burn. You can't burn impure oil. It won't burn always. It won't give off the light. You need need to repent of the impurities of your life. But brokenness too, because it's to be beaten, isn't it? Beaten for the light. You can't just throw it in any old way. It has to be prepared. And the Holy Spirit uses prepared things. And what way, what, what, what particular preparation does the Holy Spirit come and use? What particular preparation? It is the sacrifices of a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. You want to be prepared to be used? Yes, purity. You have to cast off the vile, the unclean, the, that which taints Dear child of God, you've been set apart. You're no longer common. You're holy. So you have to hear the call to purity. But you also realize you don't walk in a proud spirit saying, Oh, how how pure I am. Look at how I'm obeying and how I'm living and how obedient I am. No, no. True purity requires also a humility. And so there's a brokenness. A brokenness that recognizes that on your best day you've done thousands of things that deserve the wrath of God on your best day. So you walk around with a broken spirit. Oh, of course, again, there are times of greater brokenness. I get it. You know, Nehemiah, Nehemiah spent his Entire service before the king, and he had never been, he'd never been sad before the king before. Never. Had he had, he, had, he, had reasons to be concerned at other times in his life? No doubt. No doubt. But the king had never seen it. Never in his life. And so when he hears what's going on, and he is particularly broken over what's happening, the king can see the sadness. Why are you sad, Nehemiah? So there are times and seasons of greater brokenness. But the general spirit of the child of God is brokenness. And if you want to know God flooding in by His Spirit, then you have to be. Isaiah 57, 15. You know it well. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Yes, He does. In the high and holy place. In places that are lofty and pure, untainted, 
undefiled. That's where he dwells. But with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Some of the most amazing words in all the Bible. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Then thirdly, the consequence. So you have the contributors. It's everyone. We're all involved here. If the church is to be what she's meant to be, if we're to burn brightly and give off her light, it takes everyone. And we are to have certain characteristics. I've put before you too, purity and brokenness. But the consequence, well, what does it do? To cause the lamp to burn always. What was the threat of our Lord Jesus Christ to the churches? I will remove the candlestick. You're not burning anymore. Now you can have a facade and you can put on a whole show and it can look very impressive. But if Christ comes and takes the light out, if he removes his presence by the Spirit of God, you're no longer a church. You still have the name and all the activity and all the social work and interactions. But you're not a church. Of course, that threat was given to churches that, let's say, the light was flickering. Wasn't it? It was for various reasons. There was impure oil. There was pride and self-reliance in some of them. They thought they were increased with goods and had need of nothing like the Laodiceans. And so the light's flickering. It's not burning the way it should. Beloved, let me ask those of you who are part of this church, those of you visiting, ask about your own church and your own life. Are we burning always? Are we burning always? We should not be satisfied with anything less than burning always. Burning. And you ask yourself about yourself because the, the body is made up of the, of the collective, isn't it? It's, it's like I'm, I'm bringing something here. You know, a, a divisive bitter, hard, proud, cantankerous, cold Christian has virus-like effects. And that affects the body. The Barnabases, they affect the body too. More Barnabases. They're just joyful. They live every day amazed that God would save a sinner like me. And so they live through their lives in constant joy. And they burn and they shine. And everybody wants to see someone like that. But this is the consequence. The lamp to burn always. Beloved, burn always. Burn. Burn for God. Burn for Christ. Be like Jesus Christ in this way. The Lord, give us grace to pray to that end. I'm going to read a little portion. We finished uh, McShane's letter concerning the revival in Dundee. I'm returning then to the First Great Awakening, just to read a couple of snippets with you here to encourage you what we're praying for. We need the outpouring of the Spirit of God in our day, and God has done it before. He will do it again. So this is concerning a record given by Reverend Henry Messenger, pastor of the First Church, and Reverend Elias Haven, pastor of the Second They give an account here dated August 12th, 1743. So this is looking back over the last few years. So they live in a little town, Rentham, 
and they speak about what God did. The people of this town, so far as we can learn, or have had opportunity to observe, have generally been externally sober and honest, have kept up a great deal of external religion, especially in their families and the house of God, so that the generations that have risen up from time to time have generally been instructed from their very early youth in the first principles of our holy religion. But alas, for a long time past, the power of godliness has been evident but in comparatively few instances till the blessed revival of religion the Almighty God has lately favored us with. And just before the descent of these late remarkable showers of divine influence, religion was plainly in a languishing condition. Even some externals of it began to be more and more neglected, insomuch that in the year 1739 there were but two in the whole town admitted to the Lord's table, and vices of various sorts were much more prevalent than before. So they have a legacy, a godly legacy in the town, but it's hit a decline so that only two are admitted upon examination to the Lord's table. We're told the first open and public manifestation of the Lord's return to us by the power of His grace was on the 26th of February, 1741. He goes on and records, There appeared, especially in the afternoon, a very uncommon attentiveness upon the Word, a wonderful tenderness upon the assembly. The tokens of a very serious concern were visible on many faces. And though there is sufficient reason to believe that many persons before this were under considerable convictions, and abode so after the day above said. Yet they kept their concern very much to themselves until some time in March following, when they could no longer conceal their distresses, they began to lament their own cases to one another, and to come frequently to their minister under sole trouble. It was very agreeably surprising, almost daily, to hear of new instances of young persons, for the work of God's Spirit seemed to be chiefly on young people, in great concern, what they should do to be saved. The same thoughtfulness seemed to run from house to house and from soul to soul, and their complaints against themselves were very much the same. Now, skip a little here and just read another paragraph. The powerful awakenings and convictions on persons' minds spread from neighborhood to neighborhood, so that by midsummer there were instances in all parts of the town under great concern to know what they should do to be saved. Yet it appeared to us, so far as we could observe in our own respective parishes, that very few houses, if any in the town, were passed by and left without some observable spiritual concern on some or other of the family. Could you imagine that? Imagine every single house touched by a move of God. Maybe not everyone in every house, but each household has its own story of what God is doing. Our people in general became much more attentive in time of public worship. I want, I want you to just pause there. How you, how you conduct yourself in the house of God says something about your spirit. It says something about who you believe God to be and what you're there to do. If it's a social gathering, then there's lots of conversation about idle things, because that's what you do at social gatherings. If it's the worship of God, that will change, won't it? It has to. Their countenances 
being generally solemn, listening, and tender, showed their extraordinary appetite for the Word. And it became a very common thing with us to have a great part of the assembly in tears at hearing the Word. And especially when they heard the glad tidings of the Gospel and they were invited to rest their weary souls in Christ the Saviour. While we endeavoured with great plainness to show unto sinners their guilt and danger and to open the awful contents of the law to them, these truths would often have their proper effect in alarming guilty consciences and filling the minds of many with great concern for their own souls. And then the gospel news of a Saviour and the freeness of divine grace would marvelously melt a great part of our congregations into tears and persuade them, by divine help, to seek the great salvation. Nor have we seen reason as yet to think any other than that many of these earnest seekers were sure finders of the pearl of great price. This is what we pray for. I'm going to sing before we seek the Lord.